In 2020, Democrats took full control of Washington. And it will give Democrats control of the Senate. Joe Biden has been elected. But Republicans stood up in the states. There was no blue wave. Democratic down-ballot disasters carried all the way to the state legislatures. Now, we're the last line of defense against the Democrats' socialist agenda. The ways we're fighting back are bigger than you think. Thanks for joining episode 17 of It's Bigger Than You Think, a conversation about the politics that most impact our everyday lives. I'm your host, Annie Moore, and I'm really excited to kick off our last episode of 2021 with my friends and colleagues. Um, Edith Jorge Tunyon is our deputy executive director, and Camilla Prince is our political director. And so today we're just going to be talking about all of the victories that we had last week um, on election night in Virginia, in Texas, Pennsylvania, um, obviously New Jersey as well. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right in. Thanks, y'all, for making time. I know there's a lot of crazy stuff that's still going on. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, let's do it. Set the scene for me for um, Election Day. What was the environment like for Republicans? Camille, I'll let you start. Sure. Um, you know, it was it was kind of an ideal scenario, right? Biden is so far underwater. Democrats just, you know, are not really in tune and in sync with Americans. So it was definitely a good environment uh, for Republicans to come out and show the differences, to truly show the difference between Republican um, values and issues and, and way we want to solve problems versus Democrats in the way that they see um, solving problems. And, and to be honest, it was a way for us to show that the, the issues that we were talking about were all pretty much actually all kind of covered by Democrats. They were responsible for all the things that, that we were talking about. And so it was really a, a, a very friendly environment that if we did what we needed to do, um, that we could be successful. So we obviously had a war room that we had set up here in our office. And as results started rolling in, it was kind of a roller coaster. Like, what were you guys expecting to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think we felt pretty good going into election night um, that we were going to be successful in both Virginia and New Jersey. I don't think I don't think anyone could have expected, quite frankly, the the wave that we saw that evening. But, you know, I think the, the reason why it wasn't necessarily expected was because we were used to kind of a traditional election night, right, where you win some, you lose some. But all that being said, you know, along the way, we had made a very um, so somewhat of a, a risky investment in hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in data and polling. And so, as I said, like we knew going into election day, we were going to win. Um, it was just a matter of were we having a good night or were we going to have a great night? Uh, and if you've been in politics long enough, you know, to not set yourself up for a great night uh, because something can always happen last minute. What do you think were some of the most crucial decisions that RSLC made um, that set state Republicans up to win so big? I think, you know, how quickly answer that, and then I'd love to hear kind of Camila's answer, but I think we took a lot of risks early on. Um, and it's funny because I've been having this conversation a lot the last couple of weeks, and it's, you know, I believe right now as operatives kind of at this um, fork in the road, and it's, you know, this old school way of campaigning and this new school way of campaigning. And the old school way was kind of like, you know, you, you hoarded all this money, you sat on this money, you waited until September, essentially post Labor Day, and then you started to spend massively. Um, and the election was more or less decided in those two, two and a half months. 
um, this kind of newer way of thinking is you actually start really early on as early as possible. Um, and you do risk finding yourself in a situation where maybe you're not sitting on as much money as you'd want to by September, but you'll have spent the last couple of months really softening the ground, building a foundation with the electorate um, so that it's just a matter of kind of flipping that switch post Labor Day to be able to turn out all of those voters. So you spent the last X number of months persuading them, spending heavily uh, to make sure that your message is getting across. And that was kind of the risk that we took. We, we said, we feel strongly, these are key issues that are going to be, that are going to persuade voters, but are also going to be very important come September. Um, and we're gonna spend a ton of money talking to our electorate about them uh, over the next four or five months. And then, you know, in September, we're just going to like push them to the finish line. Uh, and it was risky. You know, there were some folks that didn't necessarily agree with that plan of action. Um, but we felt strongly that that was that was what needed to be done and how we were going to do it. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, we, we ended up being incredibly successful with that game plan. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's it's the two points, right? The spending early and the investment in data. Um, I talk a lot about investing in data, um, how it's an important tool to the decisions we make. Edith mentioned, like, we identified these messages and we stuck with them. We stayed disciplined as a committee. We helped our candidates, and especially in Virginia, where we could coordinate with them, we helped them stay disciplined. Um, there were a lot of things that kind of arose throughout the campaign cycle. Oh, we could hit them on this, or we could hit them on that, or we could hit them on that. And we made that decision not to, and we stayed focused on our three key issues across the the districts um, varied a little bit within each district, but I think also just staying disciplined um, on that focus message was important. So Camila, last year too, you were RSLC's Director of Recruitment and Training. Um, how do you think that those efforts last cycle contributed to Republican success last week? Yeah, I think campaigns, you know, where Edith was talking about old school, new school, I am would say I'm probably part of the older school, but like the newer school of thinking. Um, and, you know, they're living and breathing machines. You know, campaigns are constantly growing and constantly changing. And I think a lot of the lessons and trainings that we did last year kind of set the stage for this year. We got to see um, and kind of COVID was like an on the ground learning tool as we moved through like what was working, what wasn't working. And we got to take those best components and we did trainings with our candidates and we shared those best components and gave advice as to what they should be doing um, and not doing as they moved through the election cycle. And so we were really kind of able to take the best of the best and train them with those tools and, and resources necessary to be successful. Um, and I think the best part in Virginia is that as people started to wander, we could help them kind of get back Back on track, um, you know, remembering that no matter what, this messaging is great, the environment's great, but you still have to do the work. You still have to make the phone calls, you still have to knock the doors, and you still have to raise the money. Can you talk specifically about the success of our Right Leaders Network candidates this year? That's, the, I think, the most exciting part of all the election results is just to see the diversity, um, the diversity within the successes that we had. You know, when you look at Winsome Sears becoming the first woman lieutenant governor of the state of Virginia. Not alone is she a Marine, not alone is she African-American, not alone is she an immigrant from Jamaica. I mean, just all of these wonderful things wrapped into one. Um, it just goes to show that like there is a place for diverse candidates within our party. You know, you had, you know, 
former delegate, Jason Mirez, become an attorney general, although it's not one of our specific races, I think that's historic. He's a Cuban American or Hispanic American um, who now is also serving statewide. Um, and then I think the best part is like our legislative races, right? I mean, you know, to have of the seven flips, three of them women, one minority and one veteran, um, that's an amazing story. They all fall within our right leaders network. So that puts us at 71% of the Virginia flips being right leaders network candidates um new jersey even better you know you have all the assembly candidates being women except for one who is an openly gay republican man who won um you had the senate seat being flipped by gene stanfield who who is a former Burlington County Sheriff, who is, again, a woman um, who flipped one of the two Senate seats. So, you know, again, when you look at New Jersey as a whole, 87% of the flips were by candidates that fall within our right leaders network. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the Texas flip where we had John Lujan, also um, Hispanic American down in Texas, flip a San Antonio seat, a seat that Republicans shouldn't be winning, um, high urban, uh, suburban kind of mix of an area, high Hispanic population, and you had Republican John Lujan flip that seat. Um, so the night was just great for, you know, really diverse candidates that fall with under our right leaders network um, being successful. And I think it's the trend, like this is, this isn't just an anomaly. This is like, these are the people that you need to win to be successful. You have to have a diverse slate of candidates running. So how are the these kind of like takeaways going to influence 2022, do you think? One, I think it's just the candidates matter. Um, I think that's one of the big lessons is, you know, despite all the other efforts, the data, the, you know, like going early, all of these things, you still have to have great candidates at the end of the day to be successful. Um, so, I, so I definitely think that that's an important piece um, going into 2022. So Edith, you're actually from New Jersey. Uh, what surprised you the most about what happened there up and down the ticket? I mean, I think it's been probably 30 years, 30 plus years, more like 40, um, since anything like that has happened in New Jersey. You know, as someone who's heard stories of the heyday when, you know, Republicans swept, it was either in the early 90s or early 80s, um, you always kind of were waiting for that election cycle for it to happen again, right? Because you've heard of when it's happened and, and, you know, it hasn't happened in so long and you kind of just think to yourself, well, that was a fluke and it'll never happen again and so on and so forth. And like election night felt like 40 years ago, that red wave. So for me, the surprising thing, you know, a lot of people talk about LD3, which was the, uh, the Steve Sweeney upset. And of course that is incredibly surprising, but when you actually dig into the data, it's not surprising. The district is a Republican district. We've been seeing movement in Southern Jersey into even more red territory. You had the LD1 flip in 2019. You have Jeff Van Drew coming, switching parties. And then on election night, you have LD2 as well, um, kind of flipping on the Senate, uh, excuse me, on the assembly side for us. So, you know, you, you've seen this trajectory in Southern New Jersey. Um, the surprising fact is obviously you're going up against the political machine. So that's always going to be kind of that like interesting factor of, well, how did everything go wrong for them for this to happen? But, you know, when you, like I said, when you dig into the data, 
it wasn't necessarily completely out of this world. Um, and I, I wanna publicly say this because I do think that it needs to, to definitely be put out there. From day one, Camila had been telling me to do, we should do stuff in LD3 you know, it, the numbers are there, it makes sense. And, you know, I was very much of the school of thought of, we, there's no point, specifically from a financial perspective, right? Like, even though the numbers were there and the data were there and every single decision that we made in the last year, and obviously since we've all been here, has been data-driven. You know, when you look back at the last time that a, a significant campaign was kind of um, put up against Steve Sweeney, $5.4 million were spent and he still won. So, you know, we certainly didn't have $5.4 million to play in, a, in one single district in New Jersey. Um, we had a fraction of that. And so we had to be very uh, precise um, and just good about how and where and when we spent our money. Um, and so all that to say, you know, while it was a surprise at the end of the day, I think Camila can definitely tip her hat and say, hey, I saw this coming all along. Um, and so all in all, I think, you know, we came out of that, as the memo says, kind of really being able to go back and said, hey, we told you so. A lot of people discredited New Jersey. A lot of people discredited some of the efforts um, in these districts and kind of wrote the state off. But, you know, when you have that many, when you have that much data pointing in one direction, like something's got to give, right? There has to be a breaking point of, okay, well, maybe one poll is wrong. Maybe one data in a district is wrong. But when everything is telling you, that we're going in this direction, um, then there's there's definitely a movement there. I think that's a good point though, Edith brings up. And like, we talk about data a lot, but it's not just one data point that we use. Um, and, and I think that that's important. Don't just do one poll. Don't just, you know, do one modeling project. Well, do one modeling project, but you know, like make sure that there's other data points, like there's pulling and things that are also matching. Um, and so that you're having these various points to show you that this is the right direction. Yeah, data is super important. Um, and things that aren't data driven are inevitably probably not gonna be successful. And I think that we've seen that on multiple occasions from the other side. Like, are they data-driven? It doesn't appear to be so. Any, I wanna give you an example of that too, because, yeah. and you know, Camila and I talk about this all the time and we're just kind of like, what are like the Dems thinking, seeing, whatever. There was four days left in the election and Democrats in Virginia were still putting money on TV. like. $50,000, $30,000 buys were being made on like broadcast television in Virginia. That is the dumbest waste of money ever. Just at that point, most of the electorate has made up their mind, quite frankly. So what you're really trying to do is get people to the polls. You're not trying to persuade people. You're not trying to change hearts and minds. And, you know, for us, you take that money and you you do something targeted, like find those voters that haven't voted because you can. It's very easy. The secretary of state or your county clerk will tell you exactly who has and who hasn't voted. Find the high propensity voters that haven't gone out yet. Make sure that you are blasting them, whether it's with text messages, phone calls, targeted digital ads. I mean, there's so many ways, targeted door knocks. There's so many ways that you can kind of target that audience to make sure that you get your turnout where you need it to be. And buying TV with a week left into the election is just quite frankly, a misuse of funds and like not the right approach. And so we didn't have a choice but to be targeted, right? Because we knew we were going to be outspent, you know, in some cases 20 to one. So we knew that we had to be 
so specific with the way that we spent our money. But on the other end of things, like you had folks spending literally half a million dollars on TV to our like 150,000 and like have nothing to show for it today. So to your point, you know, the data is so important. And, and again, it's a risk, right? Because Camilla, was it like 250,000 we ended up spending in Virginia when it was all said and done on data? A little more than that, closer to four. So that's crazy. That's almost half a million dollars on data of our full budget. That is, that's a huge risk, right? That's a big chunk of money. Um, and I think that it's hard to make the case and, and hard to kind of say, hey, I need you to trust me. We need to spend this money so we know exactly who we're talking to, exactly where we are the entire way, so that if we do need to make an adjustment here or there, we can catch it quickly, make the change and kind of course correct. And that's why, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but at the end of the day, like full credit goes to our president, D. Duncan, because every time we were asking him for another project or poll or this or that, it was tens of thousands of dollars that we were asking for for something that you can't necessarily like you can you can't quantify its effectiveness until you win on election day yeah yeah and i think that too like you did brought up a good point about the like using this to see like what our holes are like we were using these polls to see like, like where people were underperforming so that they could go and target those individuals and go and like increase their numbers there like making sure that like you know, if there was a slack with independent males, then let's go talk to independent males. And I'm very proud that our campaigns actually did that too. They took this information and used it, not only for us to go use it, but for them, um, they went and used it and really targeted and closed some of those gaps with voters. So both of you, what would be your singular like top takeaway from our wins this, and, and maybe places where we didn't win? What would be your single, singular like top takeaway from this election cycle or election year? I think besides the data that we parked on, for me, it's that we can compete when we're outspent. We know we're going to be outspent. We can compete. The key is to not freak out about it um, and to just make sure that we are making very smart data-driven decisions as we do this. For me, it was the earlier, the better. I feel very strongly that we would not have been where we were come September if we hadn't started as early as we did, which we literally started right after Memorial Day. Um, and, you know, in August, I think it was probably like the first week of August, we decided we're going to go up on TV. Um, Washington Post even kind of mentioned the fact that it was unusually early in an election cycle, but what we were able to do, and all of this again is in our memo, our Virginia specific one, what we were able to do was completely catch them off guard. Um, they didn't didn't expect us to go on TV, certainly not that early, and just hitting them on everything that we could. Another component that we actually haven't spoken too much about, um, which they certainly did none of, was research. Um, not just from the tracking perspective that we talk a little bit about, but like literally spending the summer months digging into these elected officials, whether it was their vote history, whether it was you know past um, uh, offices that they had held, anything that we could about these individuals, we dug it up, we researched it, and then we poll tested it, we message tested it. We said, okay, this is all the stuff that we know about this person. What's the best hit that we have on them based on what a voter thinks? Um, and then once we got those results back, we kind of like narrowed it down to the two, three best hits we had on them. And that's what all of our ads and all of our content moving forward was on those individuals. And what we found was 
come September, you know, we go up in August, they get totally floored. They had, they didn't see it coming. They don't have anything to hit our guys on. So a couple of them go up on air. We probably get 10 days ahead of them. They finally get up, they get up with positive ads. What we found was in late September, when we went back into the field and pulled, we had drugged them down so badly on their negatives um, that they had no choice but to then start hitting our guys. Um, the beauty of being an underdog and not running as an incumbent is you don't really have a vote record or much that you can get hit on. So their ads were attacking us, quite frankly, for things that weren't super relevant, right? They would try to compare every single one of our candidates to Trump, or they would try to say that, you know, they were supported by X, Y, and Z that supported X, Y, and Z. Um, and there was just no truth or validity to it. And I think people were just kind of sick of hearing that, right? It didn't it didn't necessarily speak to what they currently care about, which was parental choice, which was the economy, which was cost of living, kind of all of the, you know, kitchen table conversations that are happening in, in your average home. They weren't talking about that. Um, and I think that that was also a huge part of why we were able to be successful too. If you could go back and do anything differently, what would it be? Um, I mean, I wish we had more money. Yeah, I think that's mine too. Just, I would have loved to invest in more money in Virginia. Um, in some of these races, I think we get so close that maybe if we had more, we could have gotten them over. And then I think the same in New Jersey. Um, I think we did really well with our spend, but if we would have had more money, I think we could have seen more successes. Yeah, absolutely. yeah I was just going to say in New Jersey, if we would have had more money, I mean, we would have, if we thought we had a great night, this would have been like an unbelievable night. What do you think is the number one lesson that candidates should bring into the midterms based off of these elections? You're going to get outspent. Don't freak out. <laughs> That's, and we had our own internal moments of freak out. I was out. like, I should remind myself about that. <laughs> <laughs> make you a sign to put on your wall that and I think it's the like don't be afraid to go up early um because to Edith's point that we defined our opponents before they could define themselves especially when you look at legislative races a lot of times people don't know who the individual is representing them so we were able to define them first so don't be afraid of that Okay, so we talked about this some, but a big part of the post-election memo for Virginia um, was that we went up on TV early. So can you talk about why we made that decision, how effective that was, and then if it's something that we're looking to replicate in 2022? I mean, so the short answer is yes. <laughs> um, we will definitely encourage our candidates, our campaigns, um, where it makes sense you know, to, to go up and go early. I think overall, like the bigger picture is like these elections are costing more and that's something that people just have to financially be able and ready to do. Um, uh, and I think that we will continue to see that trend, um, hopefully from our Republican campaigns. Um, you know, the lessons learned is that we learned it's successful, that it works. Again, you're defining your opponent before they've had it an opportunity to define themselves. Um, and for our incumbents, I encourage you to like do the same, like get your message out there on the positive side about who you are and what you're doing um, and what you've been doing for the district um, early. So that then when somebody comes back to attack you, they've already heard other pieces and good positive pieces about you. So Republicans were outspent two to one in Virginia, but they still swept 
statewide offices, and then we also flipped the House of Delegates. Why would you say an investment in the RSLC is the smartest investment that you can make in the political world? I mean, I'll make my pitch for it. I can honestly say that I have not seen many other committees, um, certainly not on the left, that have been as effective with their money as the RSLC. You know, the reality of it is, is to your point, Annie, we got outspent two to one. I mean, I, I keep going back to like Gene Stanfield in New Jersey. Um, you know, that was one that literally like gave me heartburn every time I would see how much money they were spending on TV. You know, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly yet how much we were outspent by, but I can certainly tell you on TV, it was like 20 to one or something wild like that. The way that we invest our money is so not just data-driven, but we make hard decisions for you. Let's put it that way. You know, in New Jersey, we couldn't play in every district, but what we did was we played in the districts that made the most sense. And that meant having to have difficult conversations, that meant having to make difficult decisions, but we made them, right? And, and our case has always been the same, which is, listen, we're not gonna lie to you. We're not gonna tell you that we can sweep a state. We're not gonna tell you that we can win a district if it's not there. Um, I would rather tell you the truth. And, you know, when you invest in us, know that we are going to spend your money wisely um, and intelligently, then tell you, hey, we're going to go out there and we're going to win all these seats or yeah, absolutely. We're going to get back the majority. You know, I don't think that I said once we're going to win the majority in Virginia. I said the majority is within reach. I, you know, depending on the day and the week would tell you how many seats I thought we were going to pick up. But at no point did I say, yes, we're absolutely going to win the majority because it, I didn't think that it was that close to call. Um, and I think that that's what we bring to the table and why the RSLC is a smart investment is, you know, we're going to use your money in the most effective manner possible. And we have a proven result of being able to be successful and of winning when we kind of implore the plans that, that we set out to, to kind of do. Yeah, I mean, Edith covered it. <laughs> like, I mean, that's it, that's we, it, that's we make smart decisions, we make the tough decisions and we stick to them and we stand by them. And we know that sometimes they're unpopular. I think that's one of the things, right? Like we've had to make unpopular decisions, um, but like we, we are making the right decisions. What's the best use of your dollars? And um, when you're giving to us, what is the best use and how can we be most effective? And that's what we do. And you know what I'll add to that, actually, because I just thought about it, you know, when I was saying, well, one of the few committees that, like, I think is just really good with the way that they invest, we're also, our partnerships with our sister committees are incredibly strong. Um, and I think a testament to that is for the first time ever this cycle, the RNC actually partnered with us and made an investment in us that is telling of, A, a party that trusts us. Um, that believes that we can get the job done. But B, it also tells you, hey, we're not out there by ourselves, right? We have these partnerships. We have these connections in a sense where we're not going to go out there on our own. We're always going to have someone in a sense kind of backing us up. And at the same time, yes, we're going to make the difficult decisions. But when you invest in us, you invest in the Republican Party as a network and as a whole. Okay, so after the massive, devastating, widespread, nationwide spread losses that the Democrats suffered last week, do we think that they're going to spend more or less in 2022? More. They're definitely spending more. Um, 
that is the answer to their problem in their minds is they need more money to they so they can go after us. What do you think that they think that they need to do? They outspent us two to one in Virginia, devastating losses. What is it? Three times, four times, 12 times? Where are they getting this money from? Hopefully they spend more on TV, on broadcast buys. I would love that. (laughs) There are some vendors on the Dem side making a lot of money off of some of these decisions. I'll say that. A lot of money and not a lot to show for it. Tough. Yeah. I, I think about that constantly. Like if I'm a donor on the left, like how are you not holding these people accountable? I mean, 2020 was an absolute disaster for them. 2021 is, I would almost argue worse. Um, I just, you know, I said this after 22, but if I was, excuse me, after 20, if I was a Democrat donor, I'd be asking for my money back right now. Um, and it's just, you have nothing to show for any of these investments that have been made. And I, you know, I, I agree. I think they're going to spend more money. I think that's the, the resolution to what they think is this problem. Um, and a part of me off, almost like doesn't want to share like our path to success because it almost like gives them a playbook. I just genuinely think we're better at what we do. So it doesn't even like worry or bother me. But it goes back to like, I know I say this jokingly, but it's a, it's a culture within their operative world, right? Like, it's true. There are a lot of folks that are making a lot of money by some of these decisions that are being made. And here's the reality of it. We've had to be more conservative with our spending because we don't have $30 million, you know, to go spend in one single state necessarily. You know, we have $3 million. So we need that dollar to stretch as much as possible. When when you start talking about scaling back things and making those difficult decisions and having to tell people like, Hey, I'm sorry, no, I'm not going to invest in your district. You know, you risk pissing off a lot of people. And what it comes down to is, are they ready to have a lot of people be very angry at them because they're restructuring and kind of reassessing their approach to winning elections? Yeah, I think that's true. And the answer is probably no, historically. Yeah. So, Yeah, I mean, I hope they keep, you know, spending in the wrong places. That would be great for us for 2022. But what are some other trends that you have seen, you know, over this past year, maybe even back in 2020? Like, what are the trends that you're seeing now that you think are going to be most impactful for 2022 and for Republicans winning in the midterms? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's several things. I think, one, just the continued evolution of online fundraising. Um, I know we talk about that a lot with our caucuses, um, but it's something that, you know, you can't wait until the summer when you want to go up on TV to start something like this, right? Like all of our folks should be starting that early, starting it now, so that when, you know, if you go up early and you're spending early and that money starts to deplete, you have this other funds probably starting to now bring in revenue, right? Um, So I think that that's one of the the big pieces. you know, we talk a lot about data-driven, but data-driven is in everything that you do. It's from your online efforts, it's your digital buys, it's your TV buys, it's your, um, how you do doors, you know, data-driven doors, you know, everything that's, I think, a key component, and you have to keep knocking doors. Like, we are not at a place where, like, you went on on Twitter. Um, We don't win that way. We win elections by connecting with voters and contacting voters, and I think continuing to make sure that we have a, a 
a sustainable um, on the ground GOTV effort is going to be important um, and that it's the candidate that's doing it, not your teams, um, but that you as the candidate are putting a lot of time and energy into to connecting with the voters on the ground. Um, I think those are like two big pieces outside of what we've talked about. I think my bigger picture takeaway is um, key to success is the suburbs or the, you know, kind of suburban voter, if you will. However, you know, I don't think you necessarily need to live in like what is actually a suburb, but like your college educated 30 to 45 year old voter. And we were, you know, what we've seen is that they yo-yo, right? Like we had four years of them pretty much really disliking the Republican party. And I think this year we were really able to get them back on our side. We started talking to them in a way that's relatable to them about issues that affect them. They kind of felt like I'm going and I'm voting for something that feels right right now. So, you know, my biggest takeaway is suburban voters are always going to be back and forth. They're not, you know, secured for us and they're not secured for them. There's a big emotional component to it. Um, a lot of feelings associated to it. And again, that's why I go back to they felt comfortable voting for a Republican this time around. Um, and the last thing is, you know, the relatability of it all. And super quickly, an example, New Jersey, people have been campaigning on property taxes in New Jersey for as long as I can remember. And it's never been a winning issue. The reason being is on average, your household income is higher and your property taxes are directly associated with your um, with your schools, right? So the, the thinking is, if I have really high property taxes, I probably live in a pretty wealthy neighborhood, which means my public schools are probably pretty good. And if my kids are going to school, yeah, I'm paying an arm and a leg in property taxes, but guess what? My kids are having a really good education. And oftentimes we know that you know, either parents or future parents make decisions, myself included, on where they live based off of the education system. Um, and I say all of that because for a really long time in New Jersey, again, we hit on the property taxes, they're high, they keep increasing, so on and so forth, but it never actually motivated people. It never moved people. What we did this time around was we said, hey, listen, not only are your property taxes super high, but you can't even go out at night because crime is out of control. Is it worth it at this point? You have the highest property taxes in the nation. It's one of the states that's like top three for kind of um, folks leaving. You know, is it worth it? Is what you're paying for worth it when you can't leave, you know, a charger in your car overnight on the street because it might get broken into? And so changing that tone a little bit from like, okay, your taxes are high, but then also linking it to um, safety and you know the crime rate and things like that and then saying now is it worth it and i think that once you kind of switched that narrative you started to get more people to kind of have that aha moment of like oh wow that's actually a really good point you're right um and so you know that's definitely a, a huge takeaway and one that is going to continue changing it's not you know we didn't discover the secret sauce. We didn't discover the recipe. It's going to be different every single time. And it's going to continue requiring folks like us to make, to make, you know, gambles early on as to what we think is going to be relevant, what we think is going to persuade people. And we might be wrong here or there, but I feel pretty confident we, uh, we have a good pulse of the people. Great. Do you guys have any final thoughts for us today? Uh, subscribe and like. Listen to the RSLC podcast here every month. 
every every other week every other week <laughs> follow all three of us on twitter that's all yeah twitters it's true on the twitters on the twitters and then invest invest in us yeah invest we're red, in baby when red, click right? here all right thanks y'all for joining us today and thanks everybody for listening don't forget to subscribe on the podcast wherever you listen and always remember state politics have an impact that are bigger than you think